passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. We'll take a moment to dismiss kids uh, for a time of kids worship, and they'll join us at the end of our service this morning. As they're headed out, I just want to say, um, you know, as we were singing just a few moments ago, worshiping, um, as we were singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And to hear hear your voices, um, that's one of the privileges of getting to sit in the front row. Not getting, I choose to sit in the front row. So, you know, you get to hear other people if you sit in the front row. Just a little plug for front row action if you're interested in that. I was just kidding. Um, I was just thinking, the church around the globe today, gathering together on Sunday, singing praises to our King, and what a privilege it is to remember that we don't just, we're not isolated here, we're not on our own, but God's people, this is just an outpost of God's kingdom and His church across the globe, and, and it is a great privilege to get to sing his privileges or praises today. So um, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here. Uh, we are continuing our series, Broken Vessels, looking at various figures in the biblical narrative and, and just considering what we can learn from them, as well as how do they point us to Jesus and, and his grace. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Seth. Seth uh, and his story is really just found in two verses in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. Seth is the third son of Adam and Eve. He's probably, um, even, even though he's only got two, two verses, he's, he, he plays a pivotal role in the story of the Bible, and, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So go ahead and, and consider these words uh, from Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the story of Seth. Seth is mentioned a few other times in various genealogies, but, but in essence, that's what we have when it comes to Seth. And it would be easy for us to, to pass over these two verses, but if we do that, I think we would miss the, the significant, crucial role that Seth plays in the biblical narrative, as well as how he can be a, a prime example for us as the people of God trying to live out our faith today. Now to consider the example of Seth, we're going to, to look at his life as well as what comes before him. So here's kind of our roadmap for this morning. First, we're going to look at, at life before Seth, then Seth's life, and then finally a couple implications for us uh, today as we consider what does it look like for us to live faithfully in today's culture. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's word? Father, as we consider this text about calling upon the name of the Lord, we, we pause right now, starting by just doing exactly that, by calling upon the name of the Lord, asking that you would speak to us this morning. Because God, we need you to speak to your people. 
We ask that you'd reveal more of who you are to us, that we would see you for who you truly are. And and God, in the same way, we ask that you would continue your work within your people, that we would be a people who increasingly model Jesus to a watching world. Speak Speak to us this morning, we ask. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the story of Seth starts at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth, and, and at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see God doesn't just create the heavens and the earth, but specifically, we see God creates humanity. And as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, 28, the, the creation of humanity, we see that God creates humanity as the crown jewel of his creation, distinct from the rest of creation. Humanity is created with first a specific unique identity and second with a specific unique purpose. That's what we see in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Those verses show us why humanity is the crown jewel, the the culmination of God's creation. It's because humanity is created in the image of God. There is an inherent worth in every single person that you interact with because they reflect, and yes, they do it imperfectly. We all do it imperfectly, but every single person reflects their creator. Every person who has ever lived, who is living, who will ever live, every single human is created in the image of God and therefore serves as a billboard meant to point us to our creator. But that's not the only thing that we see in Genesis chapter one about the creation of humanity. Not only is humanity created in God's image, and I would say that is our unique identity as humans, sets us apart from creation. We are also created with a specific task, a specific purpose. And as we look at Genesis chapter one, we see that that task is to have dominion over the rest of creation. So to put it another way, God, the high king of creation, intends to exercise his rule over creation alongside and through humanity. And we get to Genesis chapter 2, and we see a, a glimpse of what this dominion looks like. So Genesis chapter two, verse 15 tells us this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. And he gives us two verbs to work it and keep it. 
So we're looking at God's original plan for humanity, not just Adam, not just Eve, all of us. This is God's original plan as God places them in the garden, us in the garden. God himself dwells in the garden, by the way. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 makes that clear. God places humanity in the garden as caretakers and rulers over his creation. And this task, this purpose that God has entrusted to humanity is that over time, this rule in the garden of God was spread to fill the entire earth. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this idea of filling the earth. This is the impossibly high and beautiful calling that God has for humanity from the very beginning. That's why God created you to rule alongside him over the rest of his creation. Can you imagine spurning that gift? Turning your back on that gift? And yet, of course, as we all know, whether it's from the story of the Bible or from our own experience, that's exactly what happens. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 tell us about this unimaginable gift that God bestows upon humanity. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we see humanity's choice to spurn that gift. Adam and Eve were created to rule over creation alongside God. And instead they decide to listen to creation and rebel against God. See, Genesis chapter 3 doesn't just tell us about a really bad decision or a really bad choice from humanity. It's rebellion. It's opposition to the true king. The, The first king, the first queen of humanity created to rule alongside this high king instead chose to rebel against him. And as a result, all of creation breaks And Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, just give us a little bit of a glimpse of what that breaking of creation looks like. A few of the results of this rebellion. We see that there's strife between humanity and the rest of creation, that there is pain. Now there is conflict in human relationships. Now there is meaninglessness in our work. There's weariness in our work and even death itself. And we can look at our own lives and I bet every single one of us can say, yeah, I've been touched by every single one of those things. All because of rebellion against God. And yeah, here's the, here's the astonishing thing. God doesn't give up on his broken, rebellious creation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, moments after rebellion in the garden, God gives us a promise. It is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. God is talking to the serpent who leads humanity in rebellion against him, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to just notice God's promise here. God is saying that one day there will be an offspring that comes from the woman 
who will bruise the head of the serpent, and that will come at great cost to himself, that his heel will be bruised as well. And over the course of the rest of the Bible, as we see the story of God, God's plan of redemption unfold in the rest of Scripture, we see that this culminates with the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the long-awaited offspring of the woman, the one who will make all things right, who will bruise the head of the serpent at great cost to himself. And yet, I want you to just imagine that you are reading the scriptures for the first time. You don't know what comes next. Or maybe you're Adam and Eve, and you don't, you don't, this is all you have. You have this promise of an offspring of the woman who will break or who will fix a broken creation. And without any other knowledge, there would be this expectation that the offspring of the woman who is going to fix the broken world is coming soon. In fact, that's what we see at the end of Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, verse 20 tells us this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all the living. Let me get a few verses later. Chapter four. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So here's where we're at in the story of the Bible. God has promised that an offspring of the woman will one day fix a broken creation. A few verses later, Genesis chapter three, verse 20, we hear, uh, you know, Eve is going to be the mother of all humanity. Okay, well, maybe one of them is going to be offspring. Maybe one of them is going to be the one who fixes everything that went wrong. Then we get to chapter four and we see not just one, but two two sons. And we're left wondering, will one of these sons be the one who fixes what went wrong in the garden? Of course, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis chapter four, you know that that's not the case. The rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, the effects of that rebellion are just beginning to be made known. Genesis four actually reveals the wickedness of the human heart. Pick up in verse two. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain and Abel, they bring offerings to the Lord. Abel's is accepted. We see uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel's offering is accepted because it was made in faith. Cain's is rejected. Cain's was not made in faith. Cain is just going through the motions. He's, he's looking the part of being religious in this offering. Or in this offering. And God gives, in, the, in his grace, God gives Cain a warning. He says, you know, uh, let's, let's, I, I want your heart. 
I don't just want actions. I want your heart. So he gives Cain a warning, but rather than listening to the warning, Cain instead chooses to kill his brother. Just an unfathomable act. So Adam and Eve, they reject God in the garden. Cain does the exact same thing out of the garden. And then we get to the rest of Genesis chapter four, verses 17 through 24. We see that things only get worse and worse and worse. Cain is clearly not the chosen one who's going to make everything right. Neither are his offspring. In fact, by the time we get to the the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain, we see like the culmination of human wickedness. Take a look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. In other words, what Genesis chapter four is telling us is that the offspring of the woman hasn't brought healing and restoration. If anything, it's the opposite. Wickedness runs rampant because of the offspring of the woman. How far have the image bearers of God fallen? In fact, Genesis chapter six reveals what God thinks of humanity, the wickedness of humanity on display. It says this, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, God has promised a son who's one day going to make all things right. And as the story unfolds, it's apparent that it is not Cain. It's not Abel. It's not any of Cain's descendants. And we're left wondering, is God going to keep his promises? Is God going to do what he has said he would do? Is this God trustworthy? Has God abandoned us? Is the sin of humanity too great for this God to overcome? You see, even before we get to Seth at the end of Genesis chapter four, we are left with a question that many of us can relate to. One that's found throughout the Bible on the lips of the people of God as they wait upon God to act. And it's simply this, how long, O Lord? We get to to this moment in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, and we should be feeling those four words. How long, O Lord, how long must we wait for you to do what you have promised? How long must we wait for you to come through? How long must we wait for you to fix what is broken? How long must we wait for you to fix this mess we find ourselves in? You know, that's, that's the focus of a number of the prayers that are found in the Psalms. So Psalm 13, David, David is he's facing suffering. He's on the, the verge of despair. He's left wondering how much longer he can wait for God to come through for him. And he says this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In a similar way, the psalmist Ethan, later on in the Psalms, he looks at the state of Israel. 
And he compares the state of Israel with, with what God has promised to Israel. The steadfast love that God has promised to his people. And he wonders how long can we endure the wrath of God for our disobedience? Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? That last line there is crucial for us to see. Because what Ethan is saying is that, God, this is what you've promised. You've, you've promised steadfast love for your people, and yet that's nowhere to be found. I look around me, and I can't see steadfast love. How long until you do what you've promised to us, to your people? And those words might sound accusatory to us, but they come from a heart of faith. In fact, they would be well-placed in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4. God, here is what you've promised. You've promised this to us, and yet it's nowhere to be found. How long until you do what you have promised? You know, we would, we would do well to consider how this type of prayer honors God in our own waiting today as well. When we find ourselves in that disconnect between what God has promised to his people and the suffering and pain and affliction and hardship that we are living in today. You know, let's say that you suffer with chronic pain or some long enduring illness. And our world says that your suffering is all the proof that you need that either God doesn't exist or if he does exist, he's not worth trusting. But a heart of faith found in the scriptures says that pain, that suffering that you experience, what if that's the fuel for your prayers to God to establish his kingdom in its fullness. That's the heart of the second to last verse in the entire Bible. It's a prayer that's fueled by this disconnect between what God has promised and the reality that we experience today. It's three simple words. Come, Lord Jesus. It's crying out to Jesus, asking him to do what he has promised. What if we let our pain, our suffering, rather than being a hindrance to trusting in God, be the motivation for God honoring prayers such as these? And right here, Genesis chapter 4, before Seth even steps onto the scene, we're left wondering, how long, O oh Lord? And we're given permission to pray that ourselves. The scriptures give us words to vocalize this disconnect in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord rather than casting doubt on his goodness. And significantly, that's what we see from Seth 
in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Genesis 3, Genesis 4, they build this expectancy that God's going to come through for his people. And of course, he does time and time and time again. It's just not the way that we would expect. And by the time that we are introduced to Seth, we are hopeful. And I would say, I think Adam and Eve are hopeful as well, that he is the one who will fix a broken creation. So look at verse 25 again. It says this, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here's why I say that I think Adam and Eve had an expectancy that Seth was the one who was going to make everything right. Two things. First, his name's Seth. Seth means appointed. There's this ex- expectation from Eve when she names him Seth that this is the, the, the appointed one. This is the one who's, who's coming. This is my offspring. And that's the second thing. This word offspring hasn't been used since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There's this expectation that this is the one who's going to fix everything. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. It wasn't any of Cain's descendants, but it's going to be Seth. But then we look at Genesis chapter 5. And Genesis chapter 5 tells us that much of Seth's story is just like his older brother and his father. He lives and then he dies. That's the testimony of his his genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. It says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. You know what? That continues throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 5. That's the overarching message of this chapter. I know there's a lot of questions about the length of, of the lifespans here. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Here's the repetition of Genesis chapter 5 that makes this abundantly clear what this chapter is about. It says this, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, and he died. Seth fathered Enosh, and he died. Enosh fathered Kenan, and he died. Kenan fathered Mahalalel, and he died. Mahalalel fathered Jared, and he died. Jared fathered Enoch, and he died. Enoch fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We'll get to that in a second. Methuselah fathered Lamech, and he died. Lamech fathered a son and called his name Noah, and he died. You see what the text is saying? Just as with Adam's other son, Cain, people live and die. 
And with every son that is born, it becomes apparent that this is not the one that God is going to use to fix a broken creation, to keep his promises to his people. Even with these incredible lifespans, death is inescapable. Creation is still broken. And from the outside, as you're looking at Genesis chapter 5, it seems as though after creation spurned God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God returns the favor. That death reigns and is inevitable. That's a similarity between, uh, between Seth and his older brother Cain. And yet, there's a fundamental difference between Seth and Cain as well. It's described in verses 25 and 26. We're going to read this one more time. It says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I mentioned earlier that Adam and Eve probably thought that, that Seth was the appointed one, that the anointed, the one that was coming, the promised one of Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the one that God is going to use to fix his broken creation. And yet it becomes very quickly apparent that that's not God's plan. God's plan for Seth is not that he is the one who is going to make all things right. And that becomes apparent to Adam. It becomes apparent to Eve. It becomes apparent to Seth himself that he's not the offspring that they've been waiting for. And yet, and here's the crucial thing. And yet rather than that leading to despair or questioning God's goodness or God's ability to do what he has said he is going to do, what do they do? It's found at the end of verse 26. They begin to call upon the name of the Lord. You know, there are only three things that we can say with confidence about Seth. These two verses only teach us three things that we can, we can know with confidence about Seth. And yet each of them is a vitally important truth for us. The first one is this. These verses reveal to us that Seth learned the promises of God from his father. He learned the promises of God from Adam. That's implied and the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord in verse 26. How does, how does Seth know God? How does he know that God is someone that you can call out to? How does he know what this God is like? All of those things would have, have come from his dad, from Adam teaching him. Can you imagine what this would have been like? Adam would have told Seth about God's plans and purposes for humanity from the very beginning. He would have told his son Seth about how God had created them to rule and to reign alongside God, to lead all of creation in the worship of the true king. He would have told Seth how amazing it was to, to live with God in the garden. Can you imagine getting to hear what paradise was like from someone who actually lived there? That's not all Adam would have said. Adam would have also told Seth about that awful day when he and Eve had chosen rebellion against God rather than trusting him. 
he would have told Seth about that first time he felt shame. The first time he felt despair. Hopelessness. He would have told him about the effects of rebellion. That brokenness that exists everywhere. Including in Seth's own family. And yet, most importantly, Adam wouldn't have stopped there. He would have told Seth about the mercy of this God, a God who does not give up on his creation, but promises to one day save it. And so Adam and Eve and Seth begin to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they ask God to do what he has promised. That's the second thing we can know of Seth. Seth begins to call upon God to come through on his promises. Today, we have another name for this. We call it prayer. Seth is the first person in the Bible, at least recorded, to pray. He cries out to God, asking God to do what he has said he would do. See, Seth stands at a turning point in history because Seth and his family conclude that while God's promise remains unfulfilled, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that God is not worth trusting. They don't conclude that God will do what he will do. There's no point in even asking him to do those things because he's so sovereign, so distant from us that prayer is useless. No, they, they trust in the, the confidence of, uh, of God's sovereignty and they cry out to him. This is astounding. This family that rebelled against the king of the universe, now they come to the king of the universe and say, this is what you've said you would do. Please do it. You know, significantly, this doesn't stop with Seth. We look at the rest of Genesis chapter 5, even as, as Seth's mother and his father teach him about the promises of God. Seth does the same thing with his son, who does the same thing with his son, and on and on and on. Seth teaches his son to pray. That's the third thing we can learn from Seth. Seth teaches his son to pray the exact same thing. Genesis 4 is astounding when it comes to Seth because it tells us of these two roles that Seth takes very seriously, these two responsibilities. The first one is to pray and pray and pray that God is going to do he's going, what he has promised, that he's going to intervene in human history. And the second thing is he's going to teach his descendants to do the exact same thing. He takes seriously his responsibility to pray and his responsibility to raise up the next generation to pray and to follow this God. And in spite of the death that reigns in Genesis chapter five, it's apparent that that's exactly what happens. The seventh from Adam in the line of Seth is a polar opposite of the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. We get to this man, Enoch. It said he is to walk with God in a way that no one has since or before. And he doesn't even die. He's just taken up with God. And God hasn't brought the promised one yet. He doesn't brought this offspring who's going to make all things right. And yet Seth and his descendants are committed to praying to God to do what God has promised he would do. And we would do well to meditate on Seth. 
and on his family in this moment and what that means for us, what that means for our prayers. How often do we in our prayers ask God to come through on what he has promised? How often are our prayers shaped and molded by the promises of scripture? You know, here's the absolutely astounding thing about Seth and his family. They had one, just one promise from God in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And it wasn't even all that clear. And yet that one promise motivated them to cry out to God and to keep crying out to God. And it carried the remnants of God's people for millennia until they got to the time of Noah, where God reveals a little bit more of his plan. And you think about where we find ourselves. We stand on this side of the cross where we've seen the fullness of God's plan revealed. God's plan to bring people from all nations into his family, to make them right in his presence by the death of his son and all of the promises that we have in scripture. And we ask ourselves, do we use those promises to fuel our faith? To fuel our prayers? Do we use those promises, especially those that haven't come in their fullness, as the fuel for a life of prayer? Prayer at its core is simple. And it's the overarching message of, of Seth's life. It's simply this ask God to come through on his promises. You want a definition for prayer? There it is. Ask God to come through on his promises. And that's the legacy of Seth. And not just of his descendants, but anyone who would cry out to God in prayer that is rooted in the scriptures, asking God to do what he has said he will do. But what does that look like for us today? I want us to just consider two implications of what it means for us to call on the name of the Lord today. The first one is this, the heart that calls upon the name of the Lord trusts God in the gap between our experience and God's promises. It recognizes that there is this gap between what God has promised to his people and what we experience, and yet it trusts God in spite of that gap. Why do we need to cry out to God to remember his promises? Because as we have seen, there's this gap. There's this real gap between what God has said he will do and what we experience. Everywhere we turn, we see results of the fall, the effects of sin. People get sick and they die. Relationships are destroyed. Jobs are lost for no apparent reason. It is tough to make ends meet. Hate runs rampant in the world and on and on and on. And to call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize that this is not the way God intended things to be. And it's up to him to change it. 
But if we stop there, that would be like the beginning uh, steps of the prosperity gospel, a heart that calls upon the name of the Lord, doesn't just recognize that there's this gap, asking God to, to do something about it. It also declares a resolute trust in this God, no matter what happens, no matter what comes next. It recognizes that many of the promises that God has made to his people will not come in their fullness until he establishes his kingdom at his return. It is the echo the mindset of, of Hebrews chapter 11, describing men and women of faith when it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The heart that calls upon the name of the Lord does so because God has called out to us first. He's called out to us first. He's, he's given us promises saying this, this is what I'm going to do for you. And this heart responds by trusting that, that God will fulfill his promises. Sometimes that means he's going to fulfill them in the better country. It is this heart that God delights in. And it's that heart that must serve as the bedrock for all of our prayers. There's another implication for us today. The second one is this, that the heart that calls upon the name of the Lord is motivated by its powerlessness to bridge this gap. When our prayers become increasingly concerned with the fulfillment of the absolutely massive promises of God, we become increasingly aware of how powerless we are to bridge the gap between our experience and the fulfillment of those promises. Paul Miller, in his immensely helpful book, A Praying Life, says this, learned desperation is the heart of a praying life. Prayer starts by recognizing how powerless you are to accomplish virtually anything of lasting significance and value in your life. This is particularly important for us in today's culture. Today, with all of the rapid technological advancements of the, of the last 100 years, especially the last 40, we have become increasingly deluded by our own power. So, for example, diseases that a century ago would have killed virtually anyone who contracted them now have been, in essence, wiped out. Another example, the dawn of refrigeration means that no longer do we have to pray for our daily bread. We don't really even have to pray for our monthly bread. It was very hot last week, hot that, uh, heat that would have killed us if we didn't have air conditioning. But we had air conditioning, and it wasn't fun, but it wasn't terrible either. With the advent of newer and newer and newer technologies, we have deluded ourselves into thinking and doing exactly what Adam and Eve first attempted in the garden, thinking that we are gods. How different is the heart that calls upon the name of the Lord? 
Jesus tells us that rather than have a heart that is self-sufficient, that is drunk with its own power, that we are to cultivate the heart of a child. And Gary Miller has a book calling on the name of the Lord. Just consider this quote. Once we realize that God's agenda for us is nothing less than transformation into the likeness of Jesus and that God is passionate about enabling us to live wholeheartedly for him all day, every day for our whole lives, then our need to pray and the things we pray for becomes rather obvious. If we are asked to give a talk or to teach a Sunday school class or to lead a small group, to meet, to pray with someone else, to visit someone who is ill, can we do those things? Yes, we can. We can cut out the craft, prepare the lesson, read the passage, make the coffee, get into the car and drive to the hospital. These are things that we can do competently without being thrown into a blind panic. But can we do the work of God in our own lives or in anyone else's? You must be joking. Desperation comes when we see the massive scope of God's plan for us and our will or, and our world. The heart that calls on the Lord recognizes just how powerless it is to bring about the things that truly matter. And that powerlessness drives us to pray. If we don't feel the powerlessness of our own hearts, then maybe we need to open our eyes to the task that is set before us. Consider Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9. They're standing on the edge of the promised land, about to enter into the promised land, and this is what Moses says to the people. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Moses isn't great at motivational speeches. This is what's before you. Good luck. Of course, he doesn't stop there. Moses' point is very clear here. He's saying, you know, the task that God has before, set before you is beyond you. There's no possible way you can do this on your own. But notice Moses' next words. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. That task that God has entrusted to you, that's impossible. But God is in the business of doing the impossible. And he has made promises to you, and you can rest assured that he will do as he has promised. The same is true for us as, as the New Testament people of God, to make disciples of all nations. Notice, notice Paul's consideration of his calling in Romans chapter 1. This is what God has called him to do. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Oh, is that it? think Paul can do that on his own, in his own strength? This is an impossible task unless God is at work. And we, when we pray, we ask God to intervene and do what only he can do. Prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, acknowledges that gap and cries out to God because there's no way we can bridge that gap on our own. The life of Seth is a life rooted in the promises of God. And it's a life that each and every one of us can learn from today. You know, in fact, if we were just to take one thing, if you, if you walk out here, up here and you only remember one thing from the life of Seth, I hope it's this. In any and every season, cry out to God to keep his promises.
That's it. Call upon the name of the Lord, asking him to be at work. Call upon the name of the Lord, asking him to do what he has said he would do. Call upon the name of the Lord, asking him to do what only he can do. In any and every season, cry out to God to keep his promises. And you know why we can do this? With confidence? It's because of God's track record. Every single promise that God has made in the scriptures fits into one of two categories. Promises that he's already kept or promises that he one day will keep. That's it. There's no third category. In fact, this is the testimony of Psalm 119. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. God has been proven trustworthy time and time and time again. His promise is well tried. History is on his side. So when there is a gap between what he has said he will do and what you are currently experiencing, don't lose heart, but rather cry out to God to keep his promises, just like Seth and just like his descendants. Call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have confidence that you will do what you have said you will do. Help us to see very clearly the gap between what you have promised in our lives and realize that we are powerless to, to do anything to bridge that gap, but you are more than up for the task. I ask that we would be a people who follow the example of Seth, calling upon the name of the Lord and teaching others to do the same. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.